Tricky tax loophole, the fate of education in Tennessee, and dissecting Democratic gubernatorial chances. This is Grand Divisions, a Tennessean politics and policy podcast. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter here at the Tennessean. This is the week of July 9th. Thank you for joining us. Dave, you recently published a story about Republican gubernatorial candidate Randy Boyd's company, Radio Systems Corporation. Essentially that they took advantage of a tax loophole with an interesting name in order to save millions of dollars. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. So as you, as you mentioned, Randy Boyd, a GOP gubernatorial candidate, um, is the founder of a company called Radio Systems Corporation. They make pet products. In fact, they make more than 4,600 pet that's products. It's a lot. And they, are, uh, they range from these like dog doors to invisible fence, which is that thing that you, you put a collar. Yeah, that's the sound. You put a collar on your dog. They go out. If they go too far out in the yard, they get zapped. So... He has this company. It's massive. Their uh, annual sales top $480 million. The thing that is interesting here is that part of the company is based in Ireland. Now, the company told us that they chose to set up in Ireland uh, because it will serve as a better hub for its rapidly growing customer base in Europe. However, we had several tax experts, including an Irish tax professor, look at the company's tax records in Ireland, and they confirmed what we thought that the company has used something called a double Irish tax structure that helps them avoid paying some U.S. and international taxes. As Joel said, it's, it's in the millions of dollars. It's hard to exactly know how much they avoided, but our experts were confident that they avoided millions. Uh, one year, one expert thought that they paid an effective tax rate close to 1% as opposed to what was then the corporate tax rate of 35%. Even the Boyd campaign, they didn't seem to really contest what you had found, right? What was their response? They didn't. They didn't dispute any of our findings. They said, as ECD Commissioner, Randy's experience as an international businessman helped him successfully court a record-breaking 50,000 new job commitments and more than $11 billion in capital investment in just two years. Now, it's worth noting that at the same time his company was using this tax loophole, which is completely legal, he was also the Economic and Community Development Commissioner for the state of Tennessee. It's his job as ECD commissioner to bring companies to Tennessee to pay taxes. Hmm. So the question here is, was he, was it a double standard? Was his company taking advantage of this loophole to avoid paying taxes in Tennessee when it was his job to convince companies not to do that? This has already been the subject of a new attack ad from his competitor, Diane Black, who essentially is seizing on a couple of things related to Boyd, but uh, one of them uh, with this double Irish story where they say, uh, should taxpayers trust uh, Randy Boyd, if he's doing this with his private company, and uh, they point to a 2000, I think it was an 11 story in, in Knoxville, which we have still yet been unable to find, uh, saying that he supported raising local tax. Yeah, that's right. We've also heard uh, from some of his supporters saying, this isn't illegal, as we noted. This is the mark of a savvy businessman. And why are you writing about this? But this is what we do. We we profile candidates. We look at every gubernatorial candidate that we can and, and scrutinize their, their business practices. Uh, the, the Tennessean and the USA Today Network has started to roll out some of our, uh, of our profiles of all the gubernatorial candidates. Uh, recently, uh, Jason Gonzalez, our star education reporter, uh, sat down or tried to speak with all the candidates about their stances on education. Uh, Jason is joining us uh, for the podcast this week to, to talk about some of the biggest education issues facing the state and uh, some of the ideas that the gubernatorial candidates have for the future of education. Almost every poll that is conducted every election cycle shows that Democrats, Republicans, women, men, 
typically young and old, all say that education is, if not their top priority moving forward, it's one of their top priorities moving forward. Today, joining us on the podcast, we have Tennessean education reporter Jason Gonzalez. He's going to help us try to understand uh, some of the big education issues that are in front of the state and what gubernatorial candidates can do and what they can't do if they become the next governor. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dave. All right. So the education world is full of jargon and acronyms and uh, funny names. Let's start with perhaps one of the more controversial proposals and ideas in education, School vouchers. Can you just explain briefly what a school voucher is for anybody that hasn't heard of this? School vouchers are essentially uh, public money that is used for private scholarships to private schools. And parents can, in practice, use those to to send their kids to a, a private school. Right. And so some of the criticism of that is that people don't want to see their tax dollars go toward a private institution uh, that might, one, take money away in their opinion from public schools, but two might be a Christian school or some sort of other religious institution whose values they don't necessarily agree with. Right. That's, that's exactly right, Dave. And as well, many have criticized it because there's a possibility that if, if these vouchers are uh, put in place, that students wouldn't be able to pay enough to, to meet the demand of, of what the private school tuition is. Sometimes those private school tuitions are in excess of, of fifteen dollars to $20,000. Right, and the, and the plus side, the, the supporters say it helps take somebody from a potentially substandard school and putting them in an environment where they can succeed. Essentially. Right. Right. So uh, this week, since we are our gubernatorial profiles are starting to come out, uh, we we have the gubernatorial profiles of the Democratic gubernatorial candidates out first. So we're going to look at where the Democrats stand on vouchers and then move over to the Republicans. Jason, where do the Democratic gubernatorial candidates stand on vouchers? They're both Dean and Fitzhugh are, are against them. Uh, neither of them support and have said they, they will not support if they are governor. It would be shocking if a Democratic candidate did support vouchers. So that's uh, they're clearly playing to the base there. They, they don't support it. Uh, what about the four main GOP gubernatorial candidates? All but one support. And, and Beth Harwell, who I have talked to about this, really put in context of the history of vouchers in Tennessee and the Tennessee General Assembly. For the past about seven years or so, Tennessee General Assembly has really struggled with this issue and tried to figure out which direction it should go. Governor Bill Haslam has put out a sort of limited form of what he would like to see there's been no consensus on it. And Beth Harwell, knowing the history of that, has said she's, it's not something that she would want to see push forward in her first uh, a year or possibly at all. So that means House Speaker Beth Harwell against expanding vouchers, whereas Representative Diane Black and uh, businessmen Randy Boyd and Billy would be in favor of at least considering expanding vouchers in Tennessee. They are, and they're all for uh, what what they've said is expanded choice for parents. Perhaps the the next most controversial education issue that tends to garner lots of debate um, is charter schools and the expansion of charter schools. Again, just very briefly, Jason, explain to us what a charter school is. Charter schools are public schools that are privately run uh, through a nonprofit. In Tennessee, they can't be a for-profit school. These are handled mostly at the local level, although the state has some control through the Achievement School District and the state board to authorize charters, although in a very limited fashion. And the vast majority of charters are in Nashville and Memphis. Is that right? It's, it's true. Yes, they are. So um, in the past, this has been a real sticking point for Democrats because Carl Dean, when he was mayor of Nashville, supported charter schools, right? He, he's a proponent of charter schools and, and helped uh, charter schools in Nashville expand and, and really uh, create the, the foothold that they have here. Although Nashville, since Dean has left office as mayor, 
uh, has really pushed back uh, against charter schools. And, and so you see many of the Democrats here in the city saying, uh, Dean pushed this really hard upon us, and, and now that he's gone, there's been a wave of just anti-charter sentiment. Yeah, and that's, again, that's some of the same criticism of sending public money into a privately run organization where there is, in the in the mind of, of charter opponents, there's less oversight and there's less regulation that can happen in these schools. Supporters say that this is, again, offering students a different avenue to succeed. It's an ongoing battle in Nashville. Uh, you're saying in, in your recent reporting that Carl Dean says that while he supported charters when he was here in, in, in Nashville as mayor, he doesn't see charters as a viable option in rural areas in the it, state. He does not. And I, what he explained to me and what he said is is that the reason why it wouldn't work in a rural setting is because of of the the demand for it. There's not enough demand within a rural setting and not, not enough of a population within that setting to support charter schools. So therefore, he's he's not for it in rural settings, but he, he feels like in an urban setting, there are some situations where it works. House Minority leader Craig Fitzhugh, the other Democrat in the race, has been a longtime opponent of charter schools, and he's kind of thrown some punches at, at Carl Dean over his support for charter schools. Uh, all four gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side do support charter proliferation, right? That's true. That's true. So moving on, Governor Haslam has been known, at least in some circles, as the education governor. I think he likes to be known as the education governor. And so some of his big proposals around those lines have been college accessibility and affordability. So that's whether it's the drive to, to 55 or his popular college program, Tennessee Promise. He's garnered a lot of attention and a lot of support for these programs. Uh, Jason, you talked to some of the, the you talked to all the gubernatorial candidates actually about uh, what they think of these programs and what they would do to expand these programs. What would the Democrats do in regard to college accessibility? What they want to see is, and and I will say this, by uh, all six of the candidates of the top candidates really do support Drive to 55 and Tennessee Promise. The Democrats specifically want to see more uh, students graduating from the the Tennessee Promise program. Graduation rates, especially among uh, low-income students and minority students, is low. And so Haslam has said, hey, we want to increase this, and, and the Democrats really support that. That's right. And uh, just to clarify what I said earlier, the Drive to 55 is a goal that the Haslam administration created of getting 55% of Tennesseans a college degree or certificate. Randy Boyd is kind of seen as somebody who helped become an architect and kind of create the Tennessee Promise program. Do you, do you see that being a, a, a expanding on that being a, a key facet of his campaign? It is. He's he's mentioned it multiple times during the uh, debates. It's something that he brings up every single time, and uh, he he's always saying, "Hey, look, I'm I'm an architect. I'm I'm I've been a big part of this. Uh, this is the reason why I have such a focus on higher education, and I have a passion for this." Uh, what about what about Diane Black? Where does she stand on these programs? Diane Black supports them, um, but Diane Black and and Billy have have both said they want to increase the number of vocational programs in the state. And while Drive to Fifty Five and Tennessee Promise focus through on that through Tennessee College of Applied Technologies (TCATS), uh, they they say more of an emphasis could be really put on vocational programs because uh, of especially in rural areas of the need for jobs and 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 skilled labor. Sure, and just just for context, Bill runs a company that provides plumbing and HVAC and similar services and has said that he's an advocate for these vocational training because that's that's kind of what he's made out of his out of his career. In any gubernatorial campaign, you tend to hear candidates talk about a lot of issues that they might not be able to actually have any impact on when they're when they're governor. We talked a lot about that last week when we focused on immigration, when you hear somebody talking about building a wall. 
However, there's clearly many avenues for a governor to have impact in education. I think two of them that have been a huge focus during the Hasman administration have been funding, both of funding uh, schools and uh, when it comes to teacher pay and testing accountability, specifically administering standardized tests. Jason, can you talk to us a little bit about um, funding of schools and what the next governor can do uh, to either increase or otherwise affect state funding? I think it's a bit of a question mark what the next governor can do with uh, education funding. Haslin's been studying the basic education program for years now and really hasn't made uh, too many changes to to what's known as the BEP. Yeah, you say BEP. It's this it's this complicated, almost like a black hole of of a formula where many different factors of a of a school district and of students and of the community at large kind of go in one side and the other side pops out the essentially the amount of money that any district can have. Right. It could include teacher salaries. It can include textbooks. It can include a, a variety of things within there that goes into a student's education. Uh, what they do with that and and how how they make an impact of that is really a a. A, to be seen. Uh, BEP is something that was born from a lawsuit and then uh, kind of altered over the years through lawsuits. And there's a lawsuit out there right now that's saying the state is not providing an adequate enough money to uh, the districts because of what BEP says it should the district should be funded. Right. As, as reporters, we hear from, from teachers and from communities frequently about needing more funds or f- about increasing teacher pay or making teacher pay fair. But I would say the thing that I hear the most about, and I'm sure Jason hears the most about, is problems with testing. If you're a parent in Tennessee, you have probably heard from your student about going to school, it being time for the TN ready or the, the end of your standardized test and something going wrong. It's been a longstanding issue in the state. There have been several contractors to try to administer this program. Nothing has really worked. What Have, have the candidates talked about what they want to do with standardized testing? Each of them has talked about really bringing back the credibility to TN Ready and, and standardized testing. The state hasn't really had the type of success it wants to see with TN Ready since 2016 when online testing was canceled across the state in the spring. And then right after that, the, the company that it contracted with couldn't send out the paper tests that the state needed. Yeah, and that's, and that's a point of contention between Carl Dean and Craig Fitzy, right? Like Carl Dean appears to support online testing, whereas Craig Fitzhugh not only supports potentially paper testing, but potentially moving away from an entire state standardized test to moving to something like the ACT or a test that's already out there. And the ACT has been thrown out there many times from Republicans, from Democrats. Uh, Diane Black actually has, has said, hey, let's possibly look at the ACT as something. The State Department of Education has said, hey, it's probably not something that we could do because of the changes that have been made over the years with from moving away from Common Core into Tennessee standards, which is essentially what kids need to know at every grade level, and it doesn't align with what the state's trying to teach its students. That's right. And also the the legislature, the Republican-controlled legislature, has kind of intertwined the standardized test results with teacher accountability standards. So it's this idea of if your students are doing really well and the test scores show they're doing really well, that that feeds into a teacher's evaluations at the end of the year. Do you see any changes coming from from that? Typically, Democrats do not support this, this teacher evaluation system. I think among Democrats, it's something that definitely could come up. Republicans have been a little bit more set on uh, teacher evaluations and, and being very clear that that's something that they want to see move forward. At least at least some of them. I, there are some Republicans who are also uh, a little bit um, unsure whether or not they want this to be tied to to 
teacher evaluation. So it's a little bit of back and forth, and it depends when, among a spectrum on Democrats and Republicans where they sit with accountability. Governor Haslam has created a legacy of education success. Many people consider his tenure as a as a, a great time for Tennessee education. There are there are bumps along the road, I would say, and, and, and there are certainly people who would disagree with that. But either way, large shoes to fill for the next governor when it comes to education. Jason, thanks so much for kind of laying out those issues and, and explain to us where those candidates stand. As we heard Jason Gonzalez say, education is one of the few policy ideas that have separated the two Democratic gubernatorial candidates. In the lead-up to early voting, which begins July 13th, my colleague Dave Boucher interviewed Tom Lee. He's a Democratic supporter operative uh, who runs a public affairs firm called Civic Point, who gave us an analysis of the two Democrats in the race and really which Republican the Democratic candidate would want to face in November. Let's take a listen. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. So, Tom, just tell us a little bit about, you know, your first reaction to the campaign, where it is today. We're, we're coming down the home stretch here in the primary. What have you seen from both campaigns that you think Democratic voters will like? And then maybe talk about some of the challenges that these campaigns have seen. Well, if you look at the prototypical Democratic primary this year, you typically have an establishment candidate challenged by someone who's maybe more closely aligned with the hardcore base of the party. So think of the Joe Crowley race in New York, race for Congress, unexpected defeat of a guy who was literally counting votes to run for Speaker of the House, and he loses to a 28-year-old challenger who, who last year was tending bar. But she had a message that resonated with voters uh, and it was a message not coincidentally aligned pretty closely with what Bernie Sanders was using in the 2016 presidential campaign. This primary is not that. You have uh, two lawyers, uh, one of them also a banker, uh, one of them a former mayor. Uh, neither one seems to really be channeling the uh, uh, burn fever from 2016. They're They're actually two guys in the mainstream of democratic politics, one a longtime legislator and the other a successful mayor. They're both well-liked, uh, they're both very white, they're both very middle-aged, and they're both very male. So this race is a little different than other democratic primaries uh, around the country, and that makes it a little different, I think, to assess. Um, you know, Craig Fitzhugh has tried to wear the democratic label a little more proudly and loudly, if you, if you were 12, 16 years ago, if you said there was a Democratic candidate who had locked up the teacher's vote, at least the teacher's union support, uh, had locked up the uh, uh, other trade union support, had a long history with African-American, at least elected officials, such the Black Caucus of state legislators would endorse him, and um, seemed to be doing pretty well in raising money from trial lawyers, you would say, well, that's the formula for democratic success. But that's Craig Fitzhugh's campaign, and I I think right now it's hard to say that he's breaking through. So, uh, so he's challenged financially and, and in some other ways. 
Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask price. you about I wanted to ask you about that, Tom, because I, I agree. I think that on paper, you see that person who's been a longtime state legislator who has uh, these connections that tend to, to yeah. go over really well in the Democratic base. And, and yet the conventional wisdom says that it from the very beginning that it was a huge uphill climb for Craig Fitzhugh to try to come anywhere close, let alone to defeat Carl Dean. That, why does that make sense in this race? The Democratic base of votes is still Shelby County, but the Democratic base of money is Nashville. And with Carl Dean in the race, it just dried up Nashville money uh, almost from the get-go. And and a lot of Nashville money, by the way, didn't just stay out of the race. It went to Carl. So he's been very successful raising money, and Fitzhugh hasn't. And I, I think you just have to put it there that the Dean campaigns had the resources to deliver a message more widely, more broadly, and Craig has not. Do, do you think that, that Craig Fitzhugh's campaign waited too late to start to go on the attack? He, we saw in a recent debate that he started to, to uh, attack Carl Dean over, among other things, their differences on education policy. Did they wait too late to do that? You know, that's just Craig. Uh, the, one of the reasons he's been a successful state legislator for so long is he works well with everybody. He is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. He was the finance chairman for a brief period. He uh, was a leader of a minority party, but uh, had the respect of the legislative leadership and the Republican caucus, all because he is not a confrontational kind of person. He's the sort of person who works well with people and tries to bring coalitions together. Ironically, those are excellent skills for a governor to have. But uh, it does not appear as though those are the skills you need when you're trying to come from behind in a campaign. Yeah, you were talking earlier about how he's kind of embraced this Democratic mantle a little bit more than, than Carl Dean. Do you think that's Carl Dean trying to position himself for a general election and kind of run the same sort of campaign that Phil Bredesen is, which is I'm the guy that's looking for the best ideas, not running under a party label sort of thing? It feels like it. And, and this, is, this is the fine line that Dean has to walk. Because that's the Phil Bredesen campaign of 16 years ago that was successful in narrowly beating Van Hillary. Uh, every Democrat who's won, and there aren't many, uh, Phil Bredesen's the only one in the last 20 years, has won on that formula. And so it, it's, it's, it's a formula that worked in 2002 and, and, and very well, and, and Bredesen's re-elected in 2006. The challenge for Carl this time is the Democratic energy is not there. Uh, the Democratic energy is actually uh, you know, engaged by what's happening in Washington, engaged by what's happening uh, around the world, engaged by what's happening on the border. And, and that energy wants a little more red meat. And so what, what will be interesting to see is if Carl is ultimately successful in winning the nomination, and I think right now you'd have to say he's more likely than not to do that, is he going to have people who will come and be the foot soldiers of that campaign uh, if if he's not exciting the base in the way that people want to hear it in 2018? Sure, and I think that there's also an argument to be to be made that whether it's it's Craig Fitzhugh or Carl Dean that Phil Bredesen kind of does hit those those issues, whether it's the Supreme Court nominee or, or another national political issue, and helps drive turnout down down the ballot. But but looking again specifically at the the gubernatorial race, if you're Craig Fitzhugh or Carl Dean, which Republican candidate do you want to run against if you win the Democratic primary? So I'm the person who thought, maybe like a lot of people in 2016, 
that if Donald Trump was the nominee, he was the most beatable candidate because he was the most out of the mainstream guy. Well, that was wrong. And I think it is challenging to say that the way you win is by moderating to the middle because I think political energy right now is not in the center. Political energy is out on the left and out on the right. And so energy is what makes a difference in a campaign. That's what gets people to knock doors for you, write checks for you, tell their neighbors about you. And, and so um, I think the conventional wisdom is if Congresswoman Black were the nominee, that she is running the most uh, conservative campaign and that she would be the one who would have the hardest time getting to the middle. Uh, one of those campaigns that I advised on was Harold Ford's race in 2006. And, and with a month to go, we had a five-point lead. We lost, not because we lost the middle. We lost because the Republican campaign was very successful in reaching out to Republican voters that weren't previously in the voter universe, and they brought them in. That's what energy can do for you. And that is, I think, the challenge for these guys. If, if I were them, I would want to be running against the the candidate who is the go along get along candidate whoever that seems to be but the candidate who is say the most like someone in the middle uh, because I would want to have some advantage to uh, to to the energy calculus. So so the idea is that again you're you're driving the the base of the party whereas your opponent might not be but just in general so, do, do you so see? Here's why that's important, Dave, and here's right. why that's important because. Voter turnout in midterm elections in Tennessee has declined each of the last two cycles. Three cycles ago, total turnout was 1.8 million. The next midterm, it was 1.6. The next midterm, it was 1.4. So we've lost 400,000 midterm voters. So what gets you know, 1.2 million, say, or 1.3 million voters to the polls? It's not a broad-based appeal. It's energy. Do you think anywhere in that calculus that regardless of who the Democratic nominee is and regardless of who the Republican nominee is, that the Republican is already coming into the general election with an advantage? I mean, that seems like that's a conventional wisdom, right? Sure. Sure. Donald Trump won the state by 22 points. Uh, Mitt Romney won the state six years ago by 20 points. It takes an awful lot to turn that around in just two years, especially if you are running a campaign that's kind of playing it down the middle of the fairway. So so does that mean, do you think that the Democrat, whoever wins this the, the nomination, that they're going to come out swinging, that they're going to come out attacking the Republican? Or again, do you think it's just going as far left as you can right out of the primary? Normally, I would say you come out attacking right away. You define the differences immediately and you keep your foot on the pedal because you you want to take control of your opponent's public image. Uh, and and the only way to do that is to emphasize differences. You know, voters uh, don't really engage. We've seen it over and over again. They don't begin to engage until you get past the log cabin stories and you get to something that helps them understand the differences. And uh, John Gear at Vanderbilt and others have written about this pretty well. That that happens when the comparisons start, what we call negative. And and that's going to be an interesting question. Governors' races are right track, wrong track races, just like mayors' races. And if Tennesseans, by and large, voters I mean here, think that the state is on the right track, then that means as a Democrat, you have a choice. You either swim in the, in the mainstream of that, of that opinion and say, I'm the right track guy, 
And that might actually be what Carl Dean does, that he tries to pull the trick that Bill Haslam pulled eight years ago. Haslam didn't run against Phil Bredesen. Haslam said, I'm the guy to keep it going. Different party, yes, but I'm a reasonable person. I'm the guy to keep it going. I think that's what Carl Dean's going to do. I think Dean's going to say after the primaries are over, hey, this is a right track election. I'm the right track guy. And then they'll see who they get. They might get a Republican opponent who runs as a wrong track Republican, right, that the state maybe isn't conservative enough. That might be a, a matchup that works to their advantage if they can capture the political energy to accomplish the task of getting people actually to the polling places. Still time in the primary election for both Craig Fitzhugh and Carl Dean to get their voters out to, to the polls. Tom Lee, Democratic strategist here in Tennessee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Anytime, Dave. Thank you, man. Hey, listeners, I'm Tennessee politics reporter Jordan Bowie, and this is Fact and Fact Check, a segment of the show where we offer both facts about Tennessee politics and check out questionable statements and figures tossed around in the political arena. For a fact, last week we checked out Supreme Court justice confirmations. This week we looked toward the August 2nd primary election. The qualifying deadline for candidates seeking office for the August ballot was April 5th. But according to state law, the withdrawal deadline, except for extenuating circumstances, is 40 days out from the election. That was June 24th. Now, any candidate on the ballot will remain there until the primary election. Even in the case of the late Representative Ron Lawler, an incumbent who state lawmakers honored last week following his passing, his name will remain on the ballot until after the election, according to Shelby County Election Administrator Linda Phillips. After the primary, the local county party of anyone not running but who is still on the ballot will be tasked with selecting their replacement. That's our fact. Now on to our fact check. While Republican primary opponents Diane Black, Randy Boyd, and Bill Lee have been engaged in a close race to prove they are best suited to serve the Republican voters of Tennessee, their voting records show they haven't been completely diligent in supporting the party. For example, Lee, who first registered to vote in 1978, did not vote in an August Republican primary election from 1996 until 2006. Records show Black pulled a Democratic ballot during the 1996 March presidential primary and the August primary. And Boyd, registered in Knox County in 1994, did not cast a ballot in an election until 2002. On the other hand, Beth Harwell, also running in the Republican primary, and Democrats Carl Dean and Craig Fitzhugh have been active primary and general election voters. That's our fact and fact check for this week. Check back on our next episode for another segment. Tennessee politics may be affected by a recent federal court ruling regarding driver's license in the state. Now, you might hear driver's license. What does that have to do with voting in Tennessee? There is a correlation. Stick with us here. The judicial ruling that came down said that if the state revoked your driver's license since 2012 solely for unpaid court costs, then you could be eligible to have your license reinstated before paying those costs. The judge ruled this was unconstitutional? That's exactly right. They ruled that a law saying that you can't Get your driver's license back solely due to unpaid court costs is unconstitutional. Hmm. That Now, that's not due to unpaid child support or, or DUI ta- uh, fees or anything else like that. Here's the tie into politics. That same year that this law was passed, the financial re- responsibility law, so-called financial responsibility law, was 2012. Also in 2012, they passed the state's voter ID law. 
In Tennessee, you need to have a valid form of government ID to vote. That can be a passport. That can be a state-issued ID that's not a driver's license. But most, if not many, people in the state, when they register to vote and when they go to the poll and they show an ID, they show a driver's driver's license. license, So this ruling affects at least... 150,000 Tennesseans. Hmm. Now, some of them may already be registered to vote, right? There are other ways to register. However, you can register when you go to get your driver's license in Tennessee. It's too late to register to vote for the August 2nd primary. But not for the general. That's exactly right. So we reached out to the Secretary of State's office to see what they thought about this. As of Monday, they took the perhaps peculiar stance that because this is in a federal litigation, ongoing litigation, that they, they can't comment. Please note the Secretary of State's office is not involved in the litigation, and we thought they might want to have a comment as to whether or not 150,000 people potentially registering to vote could affect the state. They didn't comment. Here's how it could affect elections, though. In theory, if you're a candidate in, in either the gubernatorial race or the Senate race, you can start doing voter registration drives for tens of thousands of people. And one would imagine that this this law disproportionately affected people who were uh, impoverished, Mm -hmm. who were in Memphis or in Nashville or were of low socioeconomic means. Which might benefit Democrats. Maybe, right? That's the prevailing wisdom. It might not. It might not. But I think that that's the prevailing wisdom there. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's too early to see what the the total outcome could be. But in an election where Democrats need every vote they can get, that's a potential avenue to get more registered voters. Dave, you've received hundreds of calls uh, about this story that you've been following and, and, you know, reporting on. What can people do if they've lost their license? How can they get it, get it back? There's a phone number. It's the magic phone number, and it's not <laughs> my phone number. The number is 866-903-7357. I'd love it if you share it on Facebook or Twitter or tell your friends. Who's do that number to? Do whatever you can. It's for something called the State Reinstatement Center. It's their job to help make sure if you're eligible to have your license reinstated under this new judicial ruling and to walk you through the process. They'll connect you with the right place, the right people. The number's going to be very busy. As we said, 150,000 people are all affected by this, and they're all calling this number. So if you don't get through the first time, keep calling back. But that's where you need to go to find out if you're actually eligible. As we close out the show, we will note that as of this recording, President Trump is yet to select his Supreme Court nominee. Whoever it will be, we fully anticipate it will have some impact, at least on this year's Senate race between uh, presumably Marsha Blackburn and and Phil Bredesen, the Republican and Democrat, uh, running for their party's nomination. There's always a chance that Mitch McConnell and the U.S. Senate are able to push forward with this nomination before the election. Right. I think if we look at the Merrick, uh, Merrick Garland failed nomination from President Obama that took months and never actually happened, that that maybe it's a, a pipe dream to think that you can get a nomination through that quickly, but it could always happen. They could always get the nomination through after the election, but before the lawmakers or newly elected officials you know, take their seats as well. Even if that happens, it'll be interesting to see whether Phil Bredesen makes this part of his campaign. If he comes out and opposes Trump's pick that that could be a it's a strategy that that may backfire maybe sure. it doesn't sure and and, and marsh has already tried to seize on it saying hey i'm a conservative who's going to support conservative justices again as we close final reminder early voting starts july 13th that's this week so if you want to get out there and vote uh you can begin that already thank you for joining us uh please give us a, a share and, and listen to us get us online wherever you find your podcasts Uh, We will be here next week checking in on campaign finance reports and the status of of the race in both the Senate and the governor's race. Again, uh, this is Joel Ebert from Grand Divisions. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. Thanks for listening. 